2: Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guests for the episode are Dr. Adam Bloom, Dr. Peter Goldberg, Dr. Michael Levin, and they're here to talk about their new book, Here I'm Alive, The Spirit of Music in Psychoanalysis, published 2023, Columbia University Press. Uh, Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, and uh, let's meet the band. Adam, will you uh, kick us off?
0: Sure. Thanks, Christopher. Uh, Thank you for having us. Um, I guess I would introduce myself as a sort of forever student of psychoanalysis. I haven't done formal training, but I do work in that mode as a therapist and write in that genre uh, in this book with these guys and elsewhere. And similarly, I'm not a musician by training, but I have studied music theory and performance, and I worked for many years on what was known as the Music Genome Project in the early days of streaming and uh, worked in record stores before that. So I have a background in music. Uh, More than anything, I'm just really passionate about music. And these days that mostly takes the form of uh, playlists I make for my own listening and uh, for those with whom I share music, um, Maybe let these guys introduce themselves. And... yeah, Peter.
3: Hi, I'm Peter Goldberg. I'm an analyst here in Berkeley for many decades. Um, and uh, i'm I'm not a formally trained musician, although I had a previous life as a semi-professional rock rock and roll musician uh, many decades ago. Uh, and got into this through my interest in um, non-representational experience, sensory experience in analysis, sensory perception in the analytic uh, encounter, and dissociation as a uh, topic of great interest to me over many years. So somehow this led into the question of music, uh, and that's... Um, uh, once I developed a, a few ideas about that, I met uh, Adam and Mike, and uh, we formed this little group exploring this topic together.
1: Great, Michael. Uh, hi, thanks for having us, Christopher. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, I'm an analyst also here in San well in San Francisco and a very amateur long-term guitarist, long-time guitarist. Um, And I came into this project uh, first through my relationship, friendship with Peter, and then after that with Adam, uh, and my interest in phenomenology, uh, which I sort of pursued in parallel with my analytic training, um, which naturally uh, brought me uh, into a lot of interest in the work that Peter was doing that he referenced uh, on perception and non-representational states. Uh, and we did a couple of uh, programs together at scientific meetings at our institute, the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis. Uh, and the book emerged very, or the book project emerged very organic.
2: So yeah, tell me how it did, uh, I guess the three of you are just chatting about music and psychoanalysis and said we should write a book. Is that, is that pretty much how it came about?
3: Well, I mean... I gave a paper and uh, Adam discussed it and Mike was the moderator. And afterwards they approved, you know, we got together to chat. And, you know, I think they sort of sneaked up on me. I think they sort of got the idea, why don't we try and write something together? And before we knew it, we were meeting around a kitchen table once a month and uh, producing text and then editing text together uh, over a two-year period. So we really wrote this together. I mean, people would produce some material and then we would um, read it, edit it, and then meet and read the edits aloud. And uh, Adam would type away on the laptop and we produced the book that way.
2: Great. Um, all right, so let's get into to the book, um, and I'm going to read uh, 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 different passages, um, and then we'll ask questions from them. Uh, this one, uh, before we can become fully functioning emotional, rational, linguistic, cultural, social, or political animals, human beings first become musical animals this is the key argument of the book. What What does that mean? So
3: I should I, I could, uh, go go ahead ahead, Mark. Yeah, anybody,
2: anybody, jump
1: in. We don't have video Michael, here, so uh, um, let's see. Well, I think this really goes to the question of um, perception and shared understanding um which is something that we felt had largely been uh taken for granted or at least under thought under theorizing psychoanalysis uh as if human beings sort of have a naturally emerging kind of automatic uh sense of perception of the world and a way of understanding others um get- getting in tune with others that could be thought about in deeper in new ways and uh when we Zero dent Perception coming out of, primarily by Peter's work and combining it with some ideas from phenomenology, especially existential phenomenology. We settled on the, the idea of music being a sort of like a primordial operating system that all human beings are brought into that enables us to both coordinate our psychosoma, our minds and bodies, our perception, shared perception of the world and our communication uh, with others. And that this is a necessary first step in becoming human, um, not sufficient, but necessary. Uh, and with this idea in mind, we tried to, re- the rest of the book is trying to rethink psychoanalysis with this premise.
2: So what, what is it that was uh, taken for granted or, or not theorized, thought about?
1: Peter, you want to take that?
2: Well,
3: this is that's a good question because I mean it would be you know be claiming a lot to say that something had remained completely untheorized for the whole history of psychoanalysis.
2: But I think it's not presumptuous to untheorized. I mean, I uh, there was a, a, a the um, Joel Whitbrook who who gave the lecture on Freud's tin ear that his aversion to music um, in a sense took music out of the equation uh, for a long time. Um, so the fact that it's untheorized is is makes an enormous amount of, of sense. Um, you know, I think about music and and there's a, obviously a lot about music and rhythm, but then uh, phenomenology. I'm thinking about music and lyrics. Uh, we had uh, Bruce Reese on the program a few years ago, and he, in his book, he talks about you know being in session and listening, and all of a sudden he hears uh, in his mind, he hears the word respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, the song spelled out in his mind. um, And he uses that to make an intervention or ask a question. Um, Do any of you work with that way? Do you have lyrics that seem to come out of nowhere? They're not part of the the patient's communication. Um, Does that happen? Um, Yeah, I'll chime in.
0: um yeah so so we're certainly not the first to be uh trying to put together thoughts about music and our understanding of the clinical situation in psychoanalysis um, I think where our conversation ended up going uh was um focusing less on um Music-like aspects of uh, what happens between, uh, you know, patient and analyst, Um, and even uh, not so much on sort of uh, reverie or associations to pieces of music, but rather the, uh, I mean, almost as just a sort of challenge for ourselves: could we think of the analytic project and the analytic situation in actual musicological terms as a kind of music in its own right. Um, You know, for example, uh, you mentioned rhythm. Um, You know, to think of what is typically referred to as the frame of psychoanalysis, which uh, among other things refers to, you know, how long you meet for, how often you meet. to think of that, uh, not even as a metaphor for rhythm, but as an actual kind of rhythm, you know, like one of those avant garde pieces of music that would take, you know, 500 years to play or something, not quite that long, but um, that by doing something for a fixed period of time uh, at regular intervals repeatedly, Um, there is is at least the potential for that kind of repetition to start to function as a rhythm. Um, And by that, we mean uh, as a kind of music that uh, changes consciousness itself. Um, And, uh, you know, in the case of the work that we do, um, creates an opportunity for uh, consciousness to become rhythmized uh, through it becoming a uh, time, becoming a shared experience between, in this case, two people. Um, that doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, it, it it takes uh, some doing and, and that's part of the case that we're making in the book, but um, that's the kind of uh, musical property that we got interested in um, not to the exclusion of these other forms that music might take. Um, which are also important, but in the very structure of what we do, um, with respect to harmony and uh, with, sorry, with respect to rhythm, but also with, with respect to harmony, um, that's more in the in the late, later part of the book.
2: So yeah, I I mean I was really struck by that, and I'm, I'm going to ask one of the questions from the book, but I I had the thought you talked about the rhythm of we meet at this time, and when when you get into the groove of, you know, I see this patient Wednesday at 10, Wednesday at 10, the rhythm of that. And that when that is disturbed, how everybody, both patient and analyst feel it. And I have, I don't think I've ever had a time change that that isn't the first part of the patient's production when they come in, even, even if they initiated it. Um, the, they they will always say they will always comment on oh I've never spoken to you on a Tuesday or I've never spoken to you in the morning or the evening they will always comment on on the 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 change in rhythm, um, so then let me ask you um, Adam to, to continue with this uh, you ask the question in the book and I'll ask you what does the frame frame because you talk about the functioning like a garden bed to uh, what well, yeah what is the frame frame.
0: Um, the way we're thinking about it is, uh, you know, rhythm being not something that it, so to the extent that the frame operates rhythmically, it it's not that it um, creates a rhythm that then uh, is perceived from the outside, but it actually rhythmizes perception itself. So in, in the example you just mentioned, when your patient comment when your patients comment on on changes you know what uh comes through there is that there there was something there that they noticed change that that means that they are relying on a form of continuity a reliable form of continuity that only is brought to their attention once there's uh we could call it a syncopation um and Without that quality, uh, and this goes to the earlier question about what had been neglected. Um, Peter's uh, work in, in, in the paper he wrote about music and in, in much of his work over the last several decades has uh, emphasized that without a, a, quali- a quality of shared sensory experience, Uh, the normal activity of analysis, uh, free association, let's say, uh, what we might typically think the frame frames uh, is rendered obsolete. uh, That without that fundamental association at the level of uh, sensation um, and that embeds us in time, um, there, there can be only dissociation, which is basically just spinning your wheels. So the frame, in this case, to the extent that it's a rhythm, it frames conditions in which uh, the um, more typical understanding of analytic work takes place.
3: And I'll just say, if I may, that uh, in this sense, the frame is a musical device, in the sense that we're talking about music. You know, the the concept and the the way we're trying to introduce music into the discussion here is that it plays actually an integral role in psychic experience, you know, that it actually allows us to get a sense of ourselves in time and space. Uh, And, you know, when we enter the analytic session, uh, we're entering an altered state of consciousness, right? one that's actually different from the usual state. And you know the frame actually is well, the inductive method for this, right? the inductive uh, device. It, it induces us into a different state. And so much we feel that so much of what goes on in analysis is at this level of going in and out of these states uh, much as when you listen to music, it induces a state, right? It's not always a welcome state. Uh, we don't always like what we hear, and it can disturb us. But uh, we are uh, shifted from one state to another, and the frame is the sort of analytic context for that. I mean, Of course, the frame includes the voice of the analyst, the way the analyst walks, talks. The, the timing of their interventions, right? We include that in the frame.
2: Yeah, oh, there's so much there. Go ahead.
1: Can I add a thought there? You know, we don't use these terms in the book, but it might uh, clarify things if we uh, divided music up into what we could call uh, primal or primordial music and the secondary music. And what we normally use mean by the word music, like in any conversation in everyday life, it would be secondary music. You know, I'm listening to rock, I'm listening to classical, I'm singing, uh, I'm dancing. And this other deeper level of music, which we could call primordial music, is something that we again believe all human beings need to be brought into, and this starts in very very early uh, infancy, in the way usually the mother or whoever's caring for the baby. Uh, to use Peter's word, induces, or to use a word we use in the book, enchants, which means to sing in the infant into a shared sense of rhythm, uh, a shared kind of something like a key signature uh, or idiom It's culturally shared, and of course, it's uh, shared in the family,
0: Uh,
1: and melody, and this, and choreography too, a way of moving the body, gestures, that sort of makes sense within this primordial musical system and you can see this observing mothers and infants and you know in any culture uh there's an enormous amount of singing and sort of proto dancing and we think that it when the child is brought into this it's the foundation for integrating uh psyche and soma and then social relations and being able to perceive really uh, and make sense of just about any experience uh that the child's going to have from from there on out and phenomenology this would be on the level of being um you know we we think this is what heidegger was getting at with what he called an understanding of being or what mirlo ponti talks about when he talks about the body being geared into the world uh this deep primordial musical system uh facilitates this uh or it creates the conditions of possibility for it so that's that's another uh shot at the answer to the question of what is the frame framing that we think that in psychoanalysis we're we'll revi- while we're doing all the things that are more familiar to us in psychoanalysis we're also touching revisiting maybe reactivating or activating for the first time this level of primal primordial music like adam and peter Riffle talking about rhythmization uh, perception so yeah michael you you
2: you talk uh, enchantment um and let me ask the question that's put in the book. Um, why why uh, has psychoanalysis been ambivalent, uh, if not terrified of enchantment?
0: You, you made reference to this earlier, Christopher, but uh, I mean, one, one plausible explanation or at least a factor, surely, is Freud's own discomfort with that level of experience, uh, which he was you know, terrified for for good reason um, as played out over the course of his life of uh, the collective as a breeding ground for uh, mass uh, psychosis. uh, um, And so experiences that uh, took him beyond himself, Uh, he uh, was, cautious or even phobic about, something he he readily admitted. Um, And uh, something we take up um, in uh, one of the chapters of the book is uh, that the the birth of psychoanalysis is, in some sense, precisely a renunciation of that form of uh, power that people have over each other. Um, in the sense that it was a renunciation of hypnosis, um, which is a word that uh, is uh, not infrequently uh, used to refer to uh, some forms of music, especially music that um, uh, uses a lot of repetition, uh has a hypnotic uh quality um whether we're talking about uh in classical music you know american minimalism um uh, dance music like house uh trance techno music um and even the, the looping samples that are used in hip-hop music um all of these uh create conditions in which uh, something beyond oneself is, is at play. And that was uh, precisely the thing that Freud, I think, was uh, anxious about um, when he wanted to move away from hypnosis and the power of suggestion into what he thought would be uh, a technology or or a practice that would be relatively free of those elements. Um, and part of what, we found ourselves wondering about is well maybe he didn't get rid of that uh anyways and and and, or um maybe he didn't actually get rid of uh that dimension of things and maybe we uh in our work neglect that dimension of things at our own risk because if as we uh are positing human beings are fundamentally uh you know live at this level um if this is where we're alive then uh, we're gonna find a way to be taken up by something or other. And if analysis doesn't have uh, an attitude or a, a way of doing it that is um, responsible and ethical, in, in, uh that's another word that we could talk more about, um, then, uh, as we've seen play out, you know, y- human beings will find some other way to be taken up by something that is beyond themselves. Um, you know.
2: I hear somebody saying yes in agreement.
1: <laughs> that was, that was me. Um, it, unless Peter, you want to jump in here. I had some thoughts to add on to what Adam said. That um, he, this is a kind of a uh, generalization by Freud, but, you know, as a, as a man of the enlightenment, um, you know, a represent, representative of the enlightenment tradition, I think it's fair to say that Bro was especially interested in um, contributing to um, the development of a, the autonomous individual. And, you know, with the introduction of the unconscious, he, he complicates that notion, you know, that while we, we have uh, an ego that can be in health, rational and reasonable and realistic. We also have a part of the mind, the unconscious, that is, you know, it's none of those things. So the project of autonomy gets complicated. But I think the goal was still autonomy for Freud, and that he identified autonomy, relative autonomy, uh, with maturity and health, and he identified uh, what we call heteronomy or, or loss of sort of self-governance with immaturity, regression, or like Adam pointed out in these group situations. Um, psychosis uh, or different forms of mental illness so I think Freud had a kind of allergy to these to these states like he talks about in the introduction to um, civilization of discontents when he talks about the oceanic feeling um, that are that are shared in which the individual you know loses himself and he, he diagnosed that as a form of um, infantile narcissism um, and of course, a lot of other psychoanalysts have had a lot of other things to say about that domain. But we're, we're trying to say that, that there is this shared domain uh, of perception and embodiment and being that we think is, is, is best understood in musical terms that is, is a necessary condition for getting to all the other things that uh, psychoanalysis uh, might promote, including becoming a relatively autonomous uh, individual. But without that, without this uh, original sort of musicalization, uh, we're we're lost in in terms, especially in terms of um, uh, perception. Okay. Um, I had so many associations
2: to the book. I don't even know where to start. Um, But I guess I'll stay with the autonomy piece because you, um, I guess, expand on that because you write in the book, music is never the creation of an individual in isolation to paraphrase uh, both Wittgenstein and, and Winnicott, there is no such thing as private music. Is that part of what you're talking about here?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I'll pick up on that. Uh, yes, because um, where um, you know when when a uh, patient walks into our office. Uh, We're not just uh, receptive and neutral and trying to understand. We're in in a sense where the way we talk, the way we move, the way we respond is part of a kind of musical culture at some level. You know, it's a part of how we've all learned to move in relation to one another. And, um, you know, this isn't, uh, so, so nobody has just uh, got their own way of speaking. We're all speaking uh, some kind of communal, in some kind of communal rhythms and tones. Uh, now, it is true that each one of us has developed our own sort of idiosyncratic way of uh, moving of seeing things, of, of, of communicating with our voices. Um, we've all, we're all idiosyncratic. If we're too idiosyncratic, then we begin to think of people being, you know, really isolated from one another. Um, that, you know, I don't want to talk about specific pathologies here, but, you know, people who really can't sink in with other people who are out of sync. So everything going on in the analytic setting is a kind of syncing up at this level uh, of the musical. And I think a lot of what goes on is whether we can find a shared music in this regard. I don't mean, you know, literally shared musical taste or things we want to listen to, but the sort of musicality level of how we... Affect one another. How my state is affected by your voice, by your prosody, by when you speak and when you don't speak, and how how you uh, inhabit yourself affects me, and that's the sort of hypnosis part that Adam was talking about. We're sort of in the realm of mutual influence all the time, and this has been underrepresented in the history of psychoanalysis. I mean, it's begun to be written about in recent decades. Um, You know, there's intersubjectivity, but we're talking about something beyond intersubjectivity. We're talking about how the, the need and the hunger to belong to a collective domain of sounds and sensation that allows us to feel that we're in the world. So from this point of view, the analytic setting is not a place to, it's just a place to explore the individuality of a patient and dig down to their past and their unconscious and their conflicts, but it's a place, uh, I suppose more ontological kind of place, where one is where there's an opportunity to reconnect to things beyond oneself, you know, to reconnect to, uh, to being with others through these kind of musical domains. So, you know, autonomy is not the aim of the kind of analysis I'm talking about, you know. Uh, it's it, there's a way in which analysis has become more a matter in our minds of connecting to the world rather than becoming autonomous.
2: Michael, you're raising your hand.
1: Yeah, I'm throw another thought here. just to get back to the question about enchantment, I think I think Peter what peter's talking about is what we call enchantment which uh again means etym- etymologically means to sing in to, to bring one into a shared uh, musicality a shared song and that that has to be that we believe established in health in, in infancy uh and it can be established or re-established uh, in the psychoanalytic relationship there has to be a shared music a shared way of uh being a shared way of moving a shared way of of modulating the voice it doesn't have to be identical but it has to be intelligible to both and this is something that usually happens implicitly um but when it's when it's clicking you you can feel it um so that's when enchantment has occurred the the, the, let's say the two members of the analytic couple have been brought into a good enough shared musicality and then it's sort of a double entendre because we think that when enchantment occurs the, the world sort of comes to life that, that it, it makes possible a certain uh, enlivened uh, perception uh, of oneself, uh, of the other person, uh, of, of the surround, and that that's the necessary condition for someone to become more of an individual that if they want to, if that's part of the goal of the analysis, to, be, uh, to become more autonomous, to develop their own voice, to develop their own style. It's against the backdrop of, of a shared way of being, a shared music. Well, then I want to go
2: to something early on, because when I I read this sentence, and I may have misunderstood it, I thought thought the reverse. You say, um, uh, the analytic frame may be usable as a rhythm from the get-go. The analyst drops the beat, and the dance begins. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. The patient drops the beat. I, that was my sense, right? I'm, yes, we have the established time. They come into the office, but sometimes they, but I, I, I've always assumed the, the, that the patient, you know, they, they, they start the session and they, they, they drop the beat, and then I'm supposed to follow. So did I misread that?
0: Um, well, I mean maybe semantics but you know the, the so so the the session starts uh according to the calendar that, you know that is uh managed uh I think I, we think by the analyst it's not it's not a the uh maintaining or managing of the frame is not a, um the responsibility for that is not symmetrical between uh patient and analyst so Going back to this question of what what the frame frames, uh, the you know analyst has a setup that the patient is invited into, and and the, the session can start in silence, it can start uh, in with with words, but the session starts and ends, uh, and 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 a, as it is managed by the analyst, and hopefully this recedes into the background. I think what we're saying in that sentence is that. If things have gone relatively well or well enough, um, as uh, the the kind of thing that Mike was just talking about, then it's likely that someone can make use of this setup from from uh, from the downbeat. Um, but if there's been trouble uh, in that domain, uh, um, there may be the, the music the the the, the musical. Um, The analyst as musician uh, may be necessary, may be called upon to, uh, as we're using this word, induce uh, an experience that uh, maybe for the first time uh, turns something that would otherwise be non-human and mechanical into uh, a a lived and shared experience. And, we're talking about you know thinking up and and provision and maybe what uh, in the key of Winnicott we would call holding um, but the the frame equally frames um, uh, a kind of um, surplus uh, energy or heat that inevitably uh, gathers and and forms and uh, emerges and actually disrupts uh, the very uh, holding that that the holding disrupts itself uh one of the great pleasures of of writing this book i think for for peter and myself um was getting to learn a lot about Laplanche from from mike and so in in the key of Laplanche we could say that the frame michael check my work here uh uh frames what what he called the fundamental anthropological situation. situation yeah um and that's a situation that's not just of synchrony and provision, but also of asynchrony and disruption and uh, seduction. So out of uh, the, the same process that induces uh, the patient into psychoanalytic process also seduces or seduces uh, the patient um, those those two forces are are both at play and to some extent are in tension with each other and so the question is what what will allow these two people to uh live together uh it, it, through this work and through this process and that's where we think the, the the music comes in because music has all kinds of ways of uh living out the tension between regularity um reliability and surprise or disjunction or accent, um, if if that can be uh, wrangled by anything, we think it it would be by music. Can I just reiterate
3: one little part of that, Um, which is um, that, you know, we may think that the patient starts the session, but, you know, one of the things we're getting at is that the analyst starts the session whether they know it or not just by the way they open the door to the waiting room you know i mean there's a there's a a a time signature right there Uh, you know i I was aware yesterday that i was starting to open the door very gently with a particular patient you know just to it starts right there. And, you know, obviously we want to, it's not as if we don't think the patient should lead the way with their material, but I think it's an illusion to think that we are not setting the, the tempo uh, ourselves um, to some degree. So I think it's worthwhile being aware of that. The other thing is that with certain patients, more dissociated patients, I think we actually have to go further and sometimes take the initiative in setting up some communicative pattern uh, because otherwise, you know, the patient is left to have to produce material in the obligatory way, in the subligatory tone, and that things can only change if we change, not the patient. And what I mean by change there is change our mode of presence, our sensory uh, our, our presence as a sensory being in the office. Now, you know, that, that can take a million different forms. Sometimes it means we start speaking to the patient in a certain tone and that helps them to get going, you know. Um, and I think people do that all the time. I just think it's worth recognizing that there's a role for that. Uh, in clinical work. And the last thing I want to say is that we're talking about enchantment and what Michael was so clearly saying about how important it is to connect at this level. But uh, by the same token, the other side of the coin is that music is also an imposition on people, you know, that we we listen to music and we don't like it Uh, or we hear something playing and we don't like what it does to us. We wouldn't turn it off. And by the same token, the analyst's music, as it were, uh, the way he speaks, the way he moves, the the, the mode of his uh, response may feel like an imposition on the patient. So there is something about finding a shared uh, um, type of musical experience that's that's I think vital. And Michael was speaking to that.
1: Yeah, Michael. Do you want to add anything more to that? Yeah, and I think Peter, you know, describes this so beautifully in his own work. Um, but I think what we're, what Adam and Peter were both um, talking about, in, in addition to many other things just now, is the another concept that we introduced in the book, which is conduction. Uh, starting with the quote that you read, Christopher. Meaning that, um, and this is a term that we added to these other two induction that comes out of Peter's work originally. It's this you know original way that we believe that the child and perhaps later the adult needs to be brought into musicality um, to, to sort of to begin to become fully human, and then picking up on the launch and picking up on early Freud. There's seduction. There's a way that that goes astray and gets complicated, uh, and that's a, a longer story that we can talk a lot about, but that. That introduces something into the psyche that has already been induced. That it then has to grapple with, you know, coming from the other and from the planche. This is where infantile sexuality comes from, which is anarchic, disruptive, and difficult. But it's also the source of our vitality, sexually speaking. Um, so then there's a the question of what well, what what do we do with that? How do, how do we learn how to the conscience say translate? Um, I, our, our driver, infantile sexuality, which is a product of seduction. So we introduced this concept of conduction. We have to learn how to trans, well, just, they translate, manage musicalize, do something worth doing with our sexuality. And we learn how to do this from other people, um, we, we, we posit. Uh, and that this occurs also in analysis. There's always a way, as Peter was just saying, that the analyst has to find um, the, the right uh, the, the right tempo, the right rhythm, um, the right posture, the right choreography to connect with the patient and start to provide a, a kind of language or music, in, in our terms, that eventually the, the patient can use uh, to find more livable forms for what is, um, you know, what traditionally psychoanalysis would call their, their unconsciousness and how sexuality.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I just, I, again, this book, I had so many associations to what you just said. And I guess the uh, getting in sync, uh, the the analyst where the, the two of you hear the music, um, I, I feel that, in a sense, most acutely in its absence. I don't know if anybody here has had the experience of uh, taking on a patient whose analyst has died and 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 an analyst for whom they were in sync where the music was was there and rhythmized. um and its its absence is is really really felt um when but when you're the new uh the new person um you've mentioned i think michael uh, earlier and then just now you um peter you were saying you a piece of music that you may not like what it says and i'm associated uh in the book to uh you have a passage of uh, freud in hysteria that finishes with um, all the subject's attention is concentrated um, on the process of satisfaction Uh, and then you say might we say then that psychoanalysis at its most transformative induces the hypnoid state that constitutes an essentially needed experience of satisfaction and then jumping to the end um, Freud calling it unbinding morning uh, in both cases the self is reorganized to accommodate a fresh experience of the world um, which goes to what you you talk about the music in the moment um, ushered in by what beyond called catastrophic change the kind of experience or psychical adjustment that changes the world as one knows it um obviously there's a, a lot there but the word satisfaction um really struck me because certainly in the united states the pursuit of happiness the pursuit of feelings but you can you can have satisfaction even with music you hate you may not have happiness. You may not have pleasure. You might have unpleasure, but you can, you can have satisfaction. And when I read the beyond quote about catastrophic, uh, I was reminded that, um, Ferenczi when he wrote to when he translated it to Hungarian, he called it catastrophe and that his ideas that the, 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 the relived catastrophe over and over again is, you know, all of us coming out of the ocean and the separation. So, It was just those were the associations because, it again, it brings us back to the Oceanic, which Freud couldn't access. Um,
3: I'll just quickly respond, then others can. I want to sort of, I I realize the way I was putting it earlier was was not helpful and accurate. It isn't so much that the important thing is not that I like a piece of music. That's not it, and I think this is what you're picking up on, Christopher. The important thing is that I can enter some musical domain that can affect me. And you know, the real difficulty for a lot of our patients and a lot of us these days, that we live in such an overstimulating environment that's actually so impersonal. That the soundscapes we live in are so impersonal. You know, we just hear music blasted us from all around. Um, the problem these days is not that I might like or not like a piece of music. In fact, that's not an issue. The problem is that I may not be able to actually feel that I can enter into some domain of music that can affect me in a meaningful way. You know, that can allow me to change my sense of where I am or, or what I am. And that kind of problem which we could call isolation, let's say, you know, sensory isolation, where I can only listen to the same music all the time and I can't bear anything else. It's not so much a matter of taste. It's a matter of feeling that I don't know how to go beyond myself in the sensory domain. You know, I can't join in in anything. I think that's so much, um, so relevant to the work we do with patients these days. Can they can they sort of leave the isolated the silo of their soundscapes and find something else? And what they may find, they may not like. Uh, you're quite right. Or it may be disturbing for a while. All all new forms of music disturb us uh, until we get you know until we get something from it. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, mm-hmm. affirm what you were saying, Christopher.
2: Yeah, and I'm struck by the phrase uh, enter into because that's the, the phrase that is frequently used for analysis, right? I mean, this is really sp- splitting it here, but some, one might get a therapist, one enters into analysis.
1: Yes, and that that's the what Peter just said, I think, is a, a beautiful description of the, of the kind of satisfaction that we're talking about there, what we mean by the word satisfaction, that we, we're saying in different places in the book and applying throughout it that there's a human need uh for livable musical forms uh from from the get-go that this is something that uh is uh, um uh it's endogenous in our in our species that we actually like we are musical creatures we need to find musical forms we need to find a groove we need to find a rhythm we need to find a way of moving in the world that connects us with others um, to make sense of our experience and that they being human and that's that's this basic need that is either satisfied or frustrated And often uh, a way of understanding of the reason people seek analysis is that need this need is frustrated They may have all, all kinds of conscious thoughts about and that are valid about what's going on in their life but beneath all that We think there often is an absence of a livable musical form and, and again, that's this unconscious implicit musicality, you know, it may Show up in a person's consciousness in a derivative form in a particular piece of music, the song, symphony, whatever. But beneath that, we're saying there's this. This is what the frame frames. Uh, this, this deep shared uh, coordination uh, of mind, body, perception, and relations with others, which we think is musical in nature.
0: I, I was I was struck, um, Christopher, that you read that passage. Um, After your sort of clinical example or a type of clinical situation that you found yourself in uh, with a patient whose analyst has died. um, And I'm glad you're bringing in the subject of loss. Uh, You know, the the passage you read is coming from a section of the book where we're thinking about. a kind of absence, a kind of uh, relief from being an individual or a subject that one, you know, goes around thinking one is the rest of the time, um, that uh, is made possible by uh, music and by uh, the experience of being in analysis, or to the extent that those are maybe two ways of saying the same thing. That's something that one can, you know, elect to do if. Um, historical ways of being have become uh rigid or are uh creating frustration um limiting uh the the patient in 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 some way that they'd like to loosen up um but this also happens you know not on our schedule uh in the case of loss uh where uh, in, in the case of profound loss, you know, the the, the world as one knows it, uh, as one perceives it, is uh, significantly altered. And there's something about um, maybe especially rhythm, uh, that aspect of music, that uh, keeps us going. And, you know, really every culture in, in human history uh, understands this and, and probably understands it better than uh the one where the the four of us are currently living in but uh the way that uh communities you know gather to uh create and sustain a sense of continuity so that the bereaved is free to uh be undone um you know that that's a very kind of poignant uh image of how what we think of as, as music Holds us so, so that we can be released, um, or sometimes are 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 shattered um, by loss. This this is a central principle even in Freud, that if we can't bear to lose the world, if we have to hang on to it, uh, then we're we get sucked into a melancholic process uh, in which time you know can't go on. Whereas if there's something that is creating structuring time in a reliably continuous way uh then we are free to discover the world anew uh
2: you know you you talk about loss there was a a sentence in the book that i just wrote say more (laughs) and it says nothing makes one sing like knowing what one is missing what does that mean well
3: I think I think it's what Adam just said. I learned, you know, that there's a way in which the, the the being bound to into the world or woven into the world, uh, which we feel music is a very power, you know, plays a central role in that. It's not the only thing, but it's probably the most basic way we're woven into the world. Uh, is a way of being. Yeah, we, even if our sense of ourselves is disturbed, even if losses are so great that we feel we could die from pain, uh, that being woven into the world is actually, a, it is a little bit like the Winnicott notion of the holding environment. I mean, it's analogous to the sort of primary narcissism that Winnicott talked about, where the whole world is us, or we can enter the world, you know, we have access to the world. And then the individual details of life uh, have to be dealt with, you know, and sexuality comes into that, loss comes into that. Uh, But there's something about not being able to be woven into the world that's a different kind of disaster. You know, it's a disaster of being uh, unworlded, you know, without a place in the world. And uh, I think analysis provides, whether it knows, we know it or not, we're providing the patient with a sort of a venue or a site to reaccess the
0: world.
2: Yes. Yeah. When you were talking about that, and go, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say that that sentence you read, uh, Christopher um, comes from a chapter of the book that is, um, uh, among other things, about jokes. Um, and uh, so it's a bit of a joke. But, you know, in, in addition to uh, what Peter just said, I mean, the, 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 the cliche answer would be, you know, everybody kind of knows that um, or the, the cliche is that uh, happy people don't make the best music. Um, that it's actually something about, you know, whether it's a breakup album or a a symphony, uh, that there's something about um, longing and suffering that that makes for good music. Um, And uh, even even the the great poets of psychoanalysis, uh, many of them we've mentioned already, uh, one presumes they tend to know something about what they're missing out on, um, not to mention uh, the, the sort of strange bedfellows that uh, we're playing with in that chapter, um, namely uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and uh, Kanye West, um, who both uh, you know, in complicated ways that uh, we won't be able to um, elaborate too much here, but, but we do in the book, um, are uh, poets of, of suffering what they're missing out on.
2: Yeah, I was thinking of of two uh, references here. One, um, Jeanette Winterson, the uh, novelist, opens one of her novels of uh, with the question, "Why is the measure of love loss?" And the other thought that I, or the other thing I associated to, was a line from Paul Simon, where he writes, "Sometimes even music cannot substitute for tears." Um, but Adam, you, you, you teed me up. What well, it's time to talk about jokes because you, the, the book asks, you know, what happens if the joke book had as much influence as the dream book? So what are your thoughts?
3: Well, we'd be laughing our way through the analytic hours, I guess, but, uh, Adam, why don't you speak to this
0: well this 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 came up um pretty early in in the process of of writing the book uh which for the most part follows the the trajectory of um the process of writing it but but this this actually came up early and then uh didn't quite fit in uh with what we were focusing on what we were speaking about earlier so uh we returned to it in the second half um but the main idea we were playing with um is the way that uh, jokes, and admittedly the joke book is uh, has not aged very well, uh, the jokes are not very funny in it, but the, the um, interest in jokes and uh, the way that they necessarily involve or sort of summon two people uh, in a bodily way, in an involuntary bodily way um, in real time um, and perhaps even in a musical way, you know, laughter has its own uh, rhythm and musical qualities that, you know, any notion of the sort of individual subject with their unconscious over there that is, you know, bringing in the dream they had last night and presenting it to the enlightened analyst to interpret. I mean, uh, th- that just doesn't map on to uh, the experience of laughing with someone or, or sharing a joke or being surprised um, by by something being funny. Uh it's all right there the, the the um uh aspects of the process that we feel have have been underrepresented uh you know are in full display when you're uh laughing together
2: yeah i was trying to think uh, i love uh, i hope i think everybody does i don't think a lot of everybody i love to laugh in fact i'm going to see a uh comedian tonight at radio city so love, love, love laughing. And yet the moments of laughter that happen spontaneously in session, I think are, are unrivaled. That's my experience. And in fact, um, this is, I think Michael, this might be the secondary process of, of of music, but, and this is grossly embarrassing to say, I was going to try to disguise this as a patient just now, but I'm like, that doesn't true. This is a true story. My very, young 20s early analysis and I'm there and I'm lying on the couch and I said I've got a song stuck in my head and I just I don't it just won't leave my head and my analyst what's the song and I said there's a place in the world for the angry young man (laughs) and we both get what I'm saying at the exact same moment and we didn't laugh for the whole 50 minutes but that was the entire session right there I'm like oh okay that's what's going on um yeah, I think laughter's um, just an, incredible. Um, and then you ask in the, in the book, would laughter replace tears as the signal of clinical breakthrough? Um, and that's uh, one of the major thinkers of the, the school that I study and teach in, basically says that we know when the patient laughs, we've reached the unconscious. So do you all work with humor in your practice?
1: I mean, thankfully, it it comes up a lot Um, spontaneously. You know, it's like having a dream. You sort of can't plan for it, but you can be uh, open to it, available to it, uh, interested in it. And uh, among other things, you know, uh, humor is a matter of timing and and shared understanding, just, just like music. And, you know, comedians always say that jokes work, you know, basically because not only, but basically because the, the uh, comic has good timing and is, is in touch with the audience. So um, I, I certainly take humor, you know, spontaneous laughter, the hardier the better as a sign that something's probably going going right, going well in, in a session or in a treatment. And the absence of humor is a sign that something you know, needs to be attended to.
2: Yeah, I, I, the only reason I asked that is that um, I had one very influential supervisor. I really loved her, um, but she was uh, she thought humor had no place in treatment, and she's she's long past, so I can't ask her. Um, and she was clinically brilliant. She was my single case supervisor, I and mean, she was really wonderful. But she she thought no patients want you to take everything seriously. Now I've not found that to be remotely true, but I didn't know if there was other others who shared that idea. Well, I, I find
3: that I have to be a little careful with my sardonic tendencies. I find sometimes I just want to be, you know, darkly sardonic uh, as, a way of coping, as a way of coping, maybe, and also a way of finding something, you know, some way to to make contact uh, and cut through things. So, you know, I think humour sometimes... I have to keep it in check. Keep in check what I think is humor, because uh, it may not be so funny for the
1: patient. A uh, quote just came to mind from a line from Adam Phillips, where somewhere he wrote, "I think uh, if Freud taught us anything, it's that it's not more truthful to be serious." Uh, by which I think he meant humorless. You know that that I agree, with, of course, with Peter said humor can be used defensively. You know, like anything, but. Um, but oftentimes, you know, the, the funny moments are, are moments where something really truthful has come to light and, and there's pleasure in it for usually hopefully both parties.
0: And perhaps even something about a capacity to uh, be tickled or, um, speaking of Adam Phillips, or um, uh, that, you know, in terms of breakthrough, you know, uh, maybe we've all had an experience. Somebody, I think Peter, maybe... Uh, uh, Brought up um, early in our conversations, uh, the situation of working in a in an office with uh, other other clinicians down the hall, and um, the, the painful experience of of hearing another dyad laughing uh, um, if if one is not able to laugh with a particular patient. Um, so, yeah, it being a sign of something going well. If maybe not, you know, deliberately applying humor as some sort of technical Uh, Conscious intervention, but that that um, patients and analysts have become uh, synchronized enough. But also, um, uh, you know, usually when something's funny, uh, there's there's as 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 Freud was you know theorized. um, There's there's work being done. There's um, something's being transformed uh, that was not admissible in any other way. so, you know uh, maybe it shouldn't replace crying, but at, at least uh, uh live alongside it as an um, uh, in, indicator of of something profound happening yeah, well well, Adam,
2: when you talk about you know hearing something down the hall, this happens at our uh, institute where we have uh, the classes in the evenings, and if you're in the class next to the room where the other class is laughing, you really wonder what you're doing wrong. What are they doing over there? They're obviously having a much better experience. Um, I want to pull two passages together with something that has come up throughout this this discussion. Um, and two passages together and then something that appeared... Uh, in the New York Times recently, like I was reading the book and I read this. So bear with me. Um, so we suggest, this is your, your book, we suggest that the primordial source shaping our most fundamental perceptions, emotions, thoughts, and comportment rests not merely upon the forbidden pleasures of repressed sexuality, but more importantly, upon a publicly accessed, shared, metaphysical weave of communal practices in which we are embedded into which we are inducted as members by our early caregivers and without which it is impossible to have a human life, let alone an unconscious in the first place. And then uh, somewhere else in the book, we are first claimed as members of our home cultures, interpolated as new members by the melody of speech that surrounds our infant bodies, the habitus of the way we were held the air that we breathe. Um, so that's obviously Planches is, is there, but this really, so I, I'm reading that. And then this was a really interesting article in the New York times, uh, about something called Bama rush. So it's a sorority uh, at the university of Alabama. And I think it might be a Netflix documentary, but it's, they put out these videos so that you can rush the sorority. Um, And it says, uh, the Rushies who wish to join the dancers' ranks give daily reports with noticeable twang on what they're wearing. This is, I think, the relevant part. Their southern accents are the linguistic equivalent of pointing a ring light at their shiny hair and tasteful makeup. Um, For a mainstream culture, for a mainstream culture struggling to adapt to the ways, that gender is exploding all around them, that accent is seductive. It says these are ideal women from a regional culture that values traditional gender norms. Um, and I just, it, it, it struck me um, how, and I think when you mentioned in the book and, and Peter, you mentioned earlier in the prosody, how important accent is the analyst accent uh. And and how it how it feeds into it, and that um, people can hear the music of the accent more than more than the content, I guess. So I just drew a you,
0: parallel. You don't know anything about this, do you?
3: I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's. I think that. This is you, that everybody has an accent, if you know. What I mean. And accent, the way we accent, uh, the way our speech carries a kind of embodied pattern of being in the world and of movement, is exactly what we're talking about. Like that this is the realm that goes on in analysis all the time, and God knows how much. Um, w- of what goes on in the treatment is to do with this, you know, because it's all, uh, it's not something that can easily be um, notated, you know, turned into uh, interpretations, observations. It's just, a, a le- it's felt and it's lived. So I think this is very much part of what
0: we're talking about. It's also the, you know, Signature of this thing that um, was in what you read, Christopher, uh, from our book um, that we ended up calling the weave. Uh, um, I'll, I'll just tee this up for Mike, but um, the you know, it, it, in other words, a sort of you know the, the in the New York Times piece there, they, they use the word twang um you know, I thought guitars have twain you know like to the extent that that is a musical phenomenon it it it's a it's a musical um uh expression or, or manifestation of you know the the soil the the um the stuff out of which uh you know anything like a, a, a being a, an individual or feeling like one is oneself only ever comes out of and um this is drawing on work you know mostly done outside of psychoanalysis uh that that mike knows more about than i do um so maybe pick it up there
2: yeah what's the work
1: uh well the the word it it's all over the place again in um existential phenomenology especially um starting with Maurice Merleau-Ponty and a bunch of other people who have been inspired by his work, including the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, and that's where we took the word habitus from, which is very close to what we call the weave. It's, it's a, a whole way of, of moving about uh, a bodily component, and, and that would include a manner of speech that, gives, uh, that, that informs a, a way of perceiving, understanding, and, and being in the world. Um, and it's really interesting, it can be really interesting to encounter someone with a different habitus, like for example, the uh, women in this article with their southern accent for somebody who doesn't live in that part of the country, that it, it might uh, offer a new musical form, in this case, a new twang that can uh, shape and and offer provide a, a new experience of whatever it is that the person might be describing. Um, and in terms of the accent of the analyst, I can speak to this from my own experience in analysis. My my uh, analyst had a, had a pretty strong accent from another region of the country, uh, uh, different from mine. And often the most important thing that would happen in the session for me would be the way he would say something uh, from, from his accent that would give me a, a, a slightly or sometimes grossly different affective uh, sense of what we were talking about. It would open up a new way of experiencing um you know whatever it is that we were dealing with
0: i think peter's accent is one of my favorite genres of music yeah yeah Yeah. my atlas was not peter by the way
3: (laughs) well funnily enough you know if i go to england i think my accent is pretty bad you know because it means something different over there you know, it's not English enough. So, accents can carry all kinds of vibes, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. So then let's, uh, Michael, let's pick up on this, because um, the the book, uh, translated the Language We're Using, it is only possible to have a sense of self when one is already secured in the weave of culture. Yeah. Um, is this Laplanche getting secured into the the weave of culture and his um, the fundamental anthropological situation?
1: I think it's implied in Laplanche, but I don't know of anywhere where he actually talks about the way that uh, the infant is sort of inculcated, is brought into the shared culture of the parents. I think it's sort of again taken for granted and you know, he, he's more interested in seduction, so these unconscious communications that occur between parent and child that gives the, ultimately, the, the child a kind of challenge, a kind of question that they use the tools of culture to try to answer uh, in, in their own way. So I think it's, it's implied in the background in La Planche. You know, if this wasn't happening, the rest of La Planche, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but... Again, there are there are lots of different um, thinkers, you know, from mostly without, mostly outside of psychoanalysis, but I think there's some within that um, that address this, you think? original... Well, uh, I think that well.
3: Winnicott is very
1: much uh, in the background here. No? Yeah. 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 I mean, you could say that when when in Winnicott's language, and Peter and Adam jump in here anywhere to add to what I'm saying, that the the way of holding, the the environmental provision uh, is never occurring in some neutral uh, space outside of culture. Uh, that the the way the in Winnicott's world, you know, the way that the mother holds the infant is informed by. There's a certain style of holding. There's a, there's a way of being with the baby that's informed by the cultural habitus, the cultural weave as we call it. There's a rhythm to it. There there's a music to it. There there's a there's a tempo to it. Um, so in being a good and providing a good enough environment, providing a good enough hold, the, the mother is introducing, or in our language inducing, the infant into a cultural system. When things work well, when they don't work well, um the child not only is gonna have various types of difficulties that Winnicott describes, but we could also say that they may be more at odds with their cultural weave. And that's another place we think psychoanalysis can uh can can offer something that hasn't been Uh, fully theorized
0: yeah and you know we're we're sitting around a kitchen table writing this at a moment when uh this weave that we're talking about um uh you know it's been feeling like dark times um and you know that was before we had to uh to switch to zoom to to finish uh writing the book because we couldn't be in the same room together anymore so um Speaking of singing about what one is missing, I mean we're we're, we're talking about something that is, uh, you know, in peril, a, a fraying weave, um, sometimes being you know actively uh, dismantled uh, by um, uh, certain world leaders, and um, um, so, and and you know. Through through the lens of uh, you know a lot of Peter's work, this is showing up clinically that um, people come in who are uh, you know either don't have access to or are no longer embedded in um, a world that interpolates them as as one of us and claims them um, which and, and plugs them into this this network of uh, culture that you know gives us the stuff with which to um, understand ourselves and express ourselves and become ourselves, and you know, waiting for somebody to kind of free associate their way out of that problem is is uh, you know uh, doesn't doesn't work. Um, so this is calling our attention to um, what might need to be repaired uh, if if things are impaired at the level of uh, being woven into uh, the fabric of, of uh, culture. Um, and this has to be done sensitively, right? It's not simply that the analyst says, well, here, take my culture, you're, 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 you're one of me now. Um, that would be, you know, we say neither uh, induction nor seduction, but a kind of abduction. Um, it, it needs to be uh, negotiated uh, sensitively uh, and with a sense of ethical responsibility, but well, that work is going to be done. Yeah. Please, Peter. Yeah,
3: can I just add one thing to that. I mean, uh, the 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 particular way in which the analyst provides a space for this is really uh, important, right? It's how do we provide a place, it's like a cultural site, you know, where the patient's coming for something. It's not just to fix their object relationships from the Oedipal phase, right? It's to to be able to move in and out of cultural, the uh, domains of cultural belonging. And to be able to, and I think, yeah, La Planche and Winnicott can be brought together, you know. Um, to become almost a sort of adept at not just translation, that's the planche thing, but at at transitionality, you know, being able to transition in and out and to be able to do that effectively. And what I mean is to be able to transition into cultural domains to make use of them because we need culture to, to become ourselves and to make ourselves, keep ourselves alive as beings. The trouble, of course, is that cultures themselves are not always uh, uh, benign, you know. Cultures are used by political and social forces to uh, adopt us into belief systems and this and that that can be very ugly. So, you know, this isn't this is a picture of how it's complex how important it is to recognize how much we need to be woven in but then we have to also recognize that you know, we might be woven into something that's pretty disruptive and ugly and th- this is the complexity i think of what we're dealing with and you know people who opt out as it were unconsciously and just cannot participate and have to live just in a sort of isolated soundscape um, are particularly vulnerable, I think, to both you know, the distress of being isolated and also to being inducted into collective systems that might be quite problematic. In other words, a cult is something that might speak specifically to individuals who've been uh dropped out of the weave, you know, who have found themselves isolated. Because I think cults and things like that are very canny about speaking to what it means to feel disaffected, you know, and and alone. Obviously, right. I mean that's obvious. So there's something about analysis where we're doing cultural work. We're not just doing interpersonal work.
2: Well, I, yeah, in fact, I,
1: I think t- you go ahead. I just wanted to tag on to what Peter was saying. I, I wanted to mention that Peter has been writing about this territory for over well over twenty years um, in in his own work, really groundbreaking papers that have um, you know wonderful uh, clinical descriptions uh, of the kind of adjustments that he's had to come up with uh, in his approach to patients to address these these problems that are increasingly common. I think they've only become more common since he was to them ahead of most of us and i I thought again of the uh the concept of enchantment that when people are suffering with dissociation dissociative disorders and isolation uh we we could call that a state of disenchantment you know the the world has lost its vitality it's lost its magic it's lost its interest it's lost, lost its relatability it doesn't interpolate us anymore as adam was saying so it's another concept, another way to think about what we're up to uh, hopefully in psychoanalysis is to find a way for the world to become re-enchanted. Um, but like Peter was saying, there are sort of pseudo-weaves or, or, or pseudo-cultures. Maybe they, they could be cults, sometimes they could be ideologies, but they tend to be closed systems. And I think that there's a kind of pseudo-enchantment that they can offer uh, in the, I, I think we could call the weave as we try to describe it in the book as an open system
0: i I thought of um winnicott's idea of when peter was speaking of of the location of cultural experience um and that that being where we live uh uh a la the, the title of our book um and for how much for winnicott who was uh an amateur musician himself who um according to uh, his wife would um bang out a few chords on the piano after uh the day's work um always had to do with what he called play which is uh we this right right to music and um can even think of you know the squiggle game as a kind of trading eights or something where you take a figure and and um uh improvise on it and um so the uh where where there is um cultural uh work being done as as peter was saying i think there's often a kind of music playing
2: i think uh, just to go to to the enchantment um if you think uh i'm thinking of like it just from tv and the movies intelligence briefings where someone is you know read in read me in to to whatever the situation is we might say that analysis is you're asking sing me in sing me in um and i i think all of this is is in this passage um where you write the at bottom the human being seeks and needs induction we're thus radically suggestible and susceptible to influence and in formation possibly x formation by the environment, a dethroning of the ego that Freud could never accept. Our need for enchantment renders us essentially and permanently vulnerable to being taken over, and the crucial distinction between whether we are malevolently exploited or benevolently induced into culture is harrowingly historical, a matter of what world into which one is born. Not you <laughs> um we're uh, coming to the end of our time what has not been covered that you would like listeners to to know or to think about um I mean everybody's going to go buy the book because they want to read about Nietzsche and Kanye West um that's the Adam that was the best like tease ever um but in terms of just uh, overall, anything that we've missed or not touched on that you think is essential and important,
0: I'll just say that you know, not by any uh, design, but just w- what we what we found emerged from um, jamming like this over and over again, uh, arranged itself in something like a kind of sequence. Um, you know, we've already mentioned from uh, we've we, we've mentioned different plot points along this sequence, but just to to say it in order once that um, you know we, we we've already talked about you know how induction um, creates uh, seduction that then can be um, uh, lived out uh, through what we're calling uh, conduction. Um, from, from there, you know, once there is a sense of, of um, being able to participate and, and, and live together uh, in, in a collective and, and shared way, um, people start to get uh, perhaps um, brave enough or, or, or feel supportive enough to uh, experiment and to um, uh, let things uh, come through that uh, might have previously uh, not been there or been uh, safeguarded against um, and this is how we think of you know improvisation and music uh, that once you've got chops and you know your scales uh, things start to happen um, all, all great musicians talk about this kind of experience but then that eventually, you know, sort of coalesces into something like a style, a personal style. Peter was speaking to this uh, earlier. Um, so that that uh, sequence—that's uh, how we think, you know, about somebody sort of becoming oneself or recognizable as a self. Um, and then, of course, when you know, life happens, and and things change, and, and loss comes in. All of that uh, can get uh, broken apart, and 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 um, if one is held in the music, uh, then there's an opportunity to be, you know, what Winnicott called unintegrated, um, and which could potentially start the whole process over again. So that that's just how we. Uh, that, that's the shape that emerged from these conversations that, that sort of links these different uh, concepts together that we, we've been talking about today.
3: Um, I, I don't want to add much more. I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think Adam just sort of uh, gave an overall sense of the shape that emerged. Um appreciate your, your questions uh, and comments uh, for that. You know, the only small thing I would say is that I think we touched on this. That I think this kind of being the way music um, brings us into and sort of forms a kind of pattern existence where we can be in something together with others, and that it affects how we feel within ourselves in such a profound way means that music is also, there's an ambivalence we have about it. You know, it can affect us. We need it, but it can also uh, affect us in ways that uh, are disruptive to us. So, you know, the the idea of enchantment should include disenchantment, you know, or not unenchantment, the way that we go in and out of feeling that we can be, um, that music can can do something for us and how it affects us. Uh, so it's not a conflict-free zone. You know? uh.
2: So then, well, yeah, so then my, my thought to that is, of course, that then the, the work, in quotes, is for both analyst and analyst and... To tolerate the disenchantment for as, as long as it needs to be um, tolerated. I, I was thinking about music and, and entering into it, and how it that um, uh, I don't necessarily appreciate the, the opera. Um, but I, I had to work at Met Opera for two years to, when I was doing my, my training. And so I got to see opera for free. So I tried to, to learn. And um, there's two things. I had two experiences. One, I had the experience. Again, I don't know any of these things. I don't really appreciate it. But there was one moment in Don Carlo where the, the singing finished. And I was with everybody you know, leapt to my feet. It was almost like being pulled out of my seat. It was absolutely rapturous. I'm screaming, you know, the way that it, it, it was, it was astonishing um, at that moment. It's a <laughs> number of years old. I'll never forget it. But also in terms of disenchantment, you know, if you go to a Broadway show, and you don't like it, hey, people leave. Um, they don't come back, whatever. There's no, there's no expression of the disenchantment in opera if they do not like they boo quite loudly they express their disenchantment and i don't know that of any other performance so that was my associations michael what should we what would you like to add or ask
1: um hard to add much to what um adam appeared already said i guess one thought is that um uh in case it wasn't already clear that we're introducing a lot of uh new concepts and, and some models in our book but we we're, we're not trying to you know reinvent or replace psychoanalysis you know in some wholesale way we're, we're trying to add uh something that we feel is is important obviously to the uh existing you know excellent world of psychoanalytic thought that we hope will uh enrich it um in, in a number of ways um And it it enabled us to rethink aspects of what we do in psychoanalysis in in fresh ways. And then picking up on, I think, what Adam was saying about the uh, issue of of improvisation and and I guess the aims of analysis, or one of the aims of analysis, ultimately for the analysand to uh, refine, rediscover, or find his or her own voice and style against the shared shared backdrop of the weave uh, of music to, to become adept at playing well with others, um, you know, in the Winnicottian sense, and the musical sense. Um, and then I thought of an idea in La Planche that he um, puts forward as, as, a, as an aim or kind of optimal outcome of analysis where he redefines sublimation as inspiration uh, by which he means the Ability to open, reopen, or open oneself up to the other uh, and to be um, enigmatically, mysteriously affected uh, by the unconscious of the other in ways that one can then um, you know, be inspired by to do something with. Uh, and I think that fits pretty well with um, our model that if one you know, finds one's own voice and becomes competent, and adequate, good enough at, at making use of the weave of becoming the kind of musician, uh, it's it's much more possible to enjoy you know, what LaPlanche calls uh, sublimation and be enriched by it. It's not just something that comes from within. It's not my, you know, more civilized transformation of my own drives or instincts. It's my translation and engagement uh, and enchantment with others.
0: As beautifully captured, I think, Christopher, in, in your little vignette about being at the opera and. I mean, when you think about what what that singer is doing there, acting as a conduit, you know, for a piece of music that is hundreds of years old, that through their own mastery and training and soulfulness is, you know, uh, the word inspiration, right, to to breathe life into. I mean, it sounds almost like, you know, uh, wind in in the sails of of an entire room of people and to, to be in an experience like that, I mean, we can all probably, uh, remember moments like that from, from our lives. They, they, they are the most precious moments and they're not about being, uh, an individual self. They're about, uh, being, uh, transcending oneself, uh, um, uh, through music. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was
2: mass hysteria, um. And what's interesting about the opera, at least met opera is that there's, there's no amplification, no microphones. It's the pure voice and the, the orchestra. That's sort of one of their, you know, claims to fame. So it goes to what, uh, Peter was saying earlier about the compressed music and everything. Oh, um, Every 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 sentence, I have more thoughts, but we have to stop. <laughs> We're at the end of our session for today. Oh, my gosh. Um, all right. Uh, this is New Books and Psychoanalysis. We have been talking with Adam Bloom, Peter Goldberg, Michael Levin, their new book, Here on Alive, The Spirit of Music and Psychoanalysis. Gentlemen, thank you so much for, for making the time to speak with me today. Thank you thank
0: for you. having us, Christopher. Christopher.